0: Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. Welcome to Inside the NDP Controlled Conventions. We have done a lot of podcast episodes about Inside the NDP, but this is the first time we've actually dove deep into conventions specifically.
1: We've done so many of these types of spaces over the last few years where we're giving people space to talk about the issues they've had in the NDP, and we've had hundreds upon, well, actually thousands over 1,000 people uh, attend these events. So here we are again, 2023, doing another one, covering a lot of the same issues we've been covering for a few years now. So it's going to be interesting because I've been having a lot of conversations with people about the things that have been brought up and we focused on before and getting updated on them now because of the recent news that brought forward this live stream. And it's amazing how things have gotten worse within all iterations of the NDP.
0: Yeah, and that's really... It's almost
1: like it's purposeful.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's really why we ended up jumping on and throwing this together kind of last minute was because of the decision by the NDP. Uh, You know, one person in particular decided that despite all the best efforts of members that it would be in person. So yeah, that started us asking all the same questions. We always ask, you know, why, to what purpose? And um, that's because we know convention is a terribly orchestrated uh, event that is anything but what people generally expect. So what you can expect from this evening is there's a few themes that are going to be persistent in our discussions and one real hypocrisy that's worth pointing out uh, before we start, right? Politics are inherently um, hypocritical. But uh, the themes are that really convention has predetermined outcomes that are necessary according to the leadership, right? Everyone goes into convention with their own agenda. Members, usually it's to better democratize the party or showcase a really good resolution, like a policy idea. Or maybe they want to be involved in the party, so they're going to run in an election. But um, for the party itself, it's not that at all. It's a showcase, it's a time to raise money, it's a time to highlight very specific profiles, people, and policies, right? What they already want you to be talking about. And so as a result, they have fine-tuned their ability to control these spaces so that it is exactly what they expected and not what generally members want, which is like discourse, right? Um, So a real lack of democracy is another theme uh, that all the guests that we have on will share with you like very specific stories on how it's a very top-down approach that, that each party federally, provincially, they have a director that decides everything, everything convention, everything. You know, with a small circle of people that advise them, but generally it doesn't matter what the members do, how many petitions they sign, even if they have an executive, that disagrees with them. Uh, we've documented in one episode in particular, the People's Party. We spent a considerable amount of time there. That episode was like two hours, Santiago. I'm so sorry. I didn't really, I went looking back at it. And I was like, did we really go on for that long about how anti-democratic the party was? We had like three different people come on and give very personal experiences, but they were concrete examples of you know, one person overruling many in what people consider a democratic institution, right? It's in the name and it's anything but. So um, when I ran for party president at one of the conventions that we will talk about, the theme of my speech and like the theme, again, of this discussion will be the fact that the party always chooses control over access, Right. And when you're building progressive movements, if you've listened to our show at all or you understand activism or effective organizing, including as many voices as possible is your ideal scenario. Right. If you actually want to move forward, we've provided enough evidence so far that tells you that the NDP does not want what we want in terms of a political revolution. So why we're talking about convention, which might be like a small niche in partisan politics is because it is very demonstrative of the whole everything that's wrong with the party right the fact that it's controlled by people who don't struggle the same way that you and I do that don't see the same future and who have no scruples in terms of being leaders at all and um That sounds really harsh, but when you hear all the things that we are gonna have to say in the next two hours, you're gonna just understand how manipulative and authoritarian the party really is just by examining on how they control convention, Uh, a single event that's supposed to come every two years. Sometimes it's three, um, because it doesn't really matter what the constitution says it's supposed to be. It's whatever's convenient for head office. Um, We gave a great example on the Ontario convention being delayed an entire year just to secure Andrea Horwath's uh, next kick at the can. Um, So again, that, that director controls convention in a way that suits their vision for the party, you know, fuck what members want. Um,
1: So another thing, just to clarify at the federal level, and in some provinces it's called the director and others it's called the secretary. Um, And also the structure and the bullshit we're going to talk about just surrounding convention is replicated when it comes to nominations, when it comes to writing associations, council, everything. It's the same playbook and it's, it's shared through every iteration of the NDP. So don't look at this and go, oh, what's going on in Ontario is horrible. We don't have that in Alberta or Saskatchewan or whatever. Yes, you do. And no, it's not just partisan politics. It is, it is replicated in the structure of party politics, but within the NDP, it's a very specific flavor when there should be no bad taste for being a part of this. So it's not just about convention. It's not just about one person, a director or a secretary. These people also... Have influence and support during your nomination period, complete control. If you're going up against this person in your province or your territory, you're actually going against this whole support structure that they have, which is wholly dedicated to preventing democracy in the party.
0: For sure. And like you'll have, we have guests on from BC that are going to give you very you know, clear examples of this and again we can always throw back to another episode of Candidate Crisis that describes exactly what Jay's talking about the extent of power that exists um, with a single person and that's the reason we talk about too is some people want to know why you know why do they have an ulterior motive? You know, what is so important about the internal elections or what debates hit the policy floor? And not only is it, you know, what I mentioned before, being able to control the narrative and, and what they see, but uh, forming that executive because in theory, the executive that's elected at convention could actually hold head office accountable could actually hold the paid consultants that are unelected in the party to task when they fail to represent, you know, what the party actually stands for when they don't adhere to the policy book and whatnot. And so it's important that from the standpoint of the spin doctors that run the party that that whatever we talk about on the floor is, you know, friendly discussion. We're not infighting. We're keeping exactly with what the leader had planned to highlight in the legislature or whatnot. And then also they have a, an executive that reflects their needs that are you know beholden to them to a certain extent, who want to get higher in the party and know what that means. That means you keep your mouth shut and you vote yes. And you ask as few questions as possible. Because, again, we've documented so many circumstances where people do get successful at su- uh, convention, they get elected on the executive, Jay is an example of this, and their efforts are thwarted every turn, right? So it's much, much easier um, if they just control convention and then therefore have that predetermined outcome um, so that there are no ruffles in the party, um, and some people might think that that's cool, right? We, I, I face some resistance online when talking about, you know, making convention more accessible or throwing our hands up in the air as to like what is the point? But you know, like it's supposed to raise money. It's supposed to highlight the party. It is a media opportunity. But you know, folks are just so starved for debate. Like <laughs> Santiago's before we started recording, he's like, I would just love to debate. I would just love to, you know, I almost want to run as a candidate. So I want to debate and like that, a lot of leftists are like that. So a lot of people go into a convention and they're like, I want to talk about this and I have the perfect new deal or, you know, amazing ideas to democratize the party. Right? Everyone's got um, kind of a horse in in, in the race and uh, yeah. Yeah. The last thing we're talking about this evening will be like the aftermath, how people come out of those spaces after expecting this. They experience what we're going to show you, right? Shit, right? Terrible, chaotic, Hunger Games style shit. And uh, the impact that that has on them, on Canadian politics. So then on the party in general, you know, and it's not good. It's not good. So um, I hope they make a lot of money from these conventions because... I only see them damaging the party, right? Like I don't, (laughs) you guys see any wins coming out of these conventions or?
1: I tried to find out if there were certain incentives. So does the director get a certain cut if there's this many people or this much money raised or so on and so forth, but somehow in a democratic party, there's no way to actually find that type of stuff out. But as for wins, yes, because it's the annual, what convention is, is the, it's like the Olympic torch, where it is the passing of the gaslighting and the official lighting of the gaslight for the next couple of years. So that's the only win, is they rekindle the gaslighting for a new, new wave.
0: That's a sarcastic win. Yeah. So what to expect for this evening? We're going to have guests kind of come in and out and we're going to walk through just why convention, like my notes, literally, you know, what does the party think it is? I've talked about that. You know, they think it's an opportunity to just showcase. Um, You don't get a lot of immediate exposure. What do members expect? I think, you know, each one of us will talk about that a little bit, but generally we've covered that, like we expect democracy, we expect fairness, equity, equity to be heard you know other things like in-person conventions is like to have a little bit of fun a little schmoozing networking right that those are legitimate reasons to go to convention because again the party doesn't really connect us outside of convention either this is really your only chance to talk to other writings to see how miserable they are too and then in reality what is it and it's shit like i don't know i probably end up say that word a lot because and then why is it shit One, it's hard to get there. And when we talk about accessibility, we're not just talking about like wheelchair accessibility, which I've had a few people tweet at me that the last in-person convention was actually really difficult to get around the last federal convention. So it's like, even if you go down to all of these levels of accessibility, it's awful. And considering it's not the conservatives, it's not the liberals, it's supposed to be, what it's like a grassroots movement, the working class party. And it's one of the more inaccessible conventions, right? Um if you remember, like even our leadership race, you know, is not as wide open as other parties as well. So it's a real contradiction. And sometimes I struggle with why, you know, why do they control access? I think in ways that are more than other parties It's because there's not an activist element as much in the other parties that are fighting to shift the narrative. You know, there's some elements within the conservatives that want to bring up some really awful policies and Um, I'm sure they have their day at convention and whatnot, but liberals are generally complacent and and happy to just settle for whatever discourse is provided. You know, they're middle of the road policies anyway, but there's real radical element that we have to acknowledge amongst the NDP. Um, You know, I would have considered myself one of those when I was a member, it's not a slight. And they want so much more, right? Something that the head office is not willing to give, right? They're not willing to say the word socialism. They're not really, prepared to act like anti-capitalists. And there's a lot, uh, there's a strong contingent within the NDP that are socialists that want very specific policies that will push the Canadian narrative to the left. And so the NDP, in order to stay on their centrist track, uh, need to suppress that element, right? Like in a way that other parties don't. So although you would expect something more broader, welcoming, progressive from the party, you get the opposite. And I think that's why it scars so bad, right? You have a lot of empaths. Uh, I know that word's a little bit overused, but like it takes a certain kind of individual to be an activist, right? To fight alongside people, to care about challenging the status quo. Those kinds of people don't want to go into spaces where they're told they're a nuisance, um, where they're preached to like like the choir. <laughs> that's one of my biggest pet peeves of almost all of these big meetings for the NDP is, you know, you get these leaders up there and they're literally telling you to vote for them. Like, and and why you should vote for them over, you know, Doug Ford, for example. And it's like, are you kidding? We just paid a couple hundred dollars to be here. We're sold, you know, like let's talk about how we can actually change. I see this even from some Toronto candidates when they're addressing, I won't name anybody, but like when they're addressing people that have shown up to canvas for them, and they're like talking about why we need housing. Like those fucking people know why you need housing. They they're spending their weekend knocking on doors for you. They tell them why they're important. Tell them how they're going to make a difference. Like anyway, there's not a lot of inspiring stuff that goes on at these conventions. Um, Jay, what's your pet peeve about convention?
1: How oh, it's all a fucking lie. So <laughs> all all of the things that I was told, what convention is? it's this amazing time where you get to meet these amazing like-minded people fighting for change and so on and so on. And then you get there and it is the Hunger Games where we could have been working together amazingly and been talking nonstop two weeks before convention, but at convention, no fuck you. I need my thing. I need my chance. I need my favors or my supports or my, like whatever the toxic partisanship bubbles to a boiling point. So when I entered convention, I was expecting to have input either on the mic or through voting. I was looking forward to seeing some amazing people debate some amazing things. But no, it was just this um, lace put in here. It's time for brass to grandstand. There was so much of the stuff you're talking about where the leader is sitting there campaigning to the members. It It's a whole bunch of bullshit. And I thought that that was when members, it is the member's opportunity to have their input in the party. But yet, no, it's sit down and if you carry favor, you can partake. And there is a question from Peter Zanetti. Uh, is there a good model? Because we've talked about a lot of the bad things and we're going to be going in depth. But is there a good model as to how a policy convention should be run this would include pre-convention policy vetting procedures transparency etc because we talk about what they think what the party thinks it is what members thinks think it is and what it should be under the constitution but then there's if you look at our event that we did it was a virtual um oh what was it called it was this virtual platform like an, an 80s video game where our convention was so accessible and in-depth and fun. So there are definitely ways to, to, to do it. And it shouldn't have to be every couple of years. Policy should be a very active. Accurate...
0: For Peter's question, we'll work that into the entire episode too, right? Cause like there's, that's a long answer. So whenever we're critiquing what we're experiencing Let's be cognizant to add an alternative because we've worked on this, right? Like you're talking about making things more accessible. We're going to call Christine out of the waiting room in just a minute. Uh, she's going to talk about efforts to make it more accessible, lowering costs, lowering the threshold before we call her in, though, I wanted to give people a quick rundown on right now what it takes to get to convention you can't just be an NDP member and be like, hey, convention's coming up, uh, where do I sign up? No, it's definitely not that easy. You need to find your local writing association if they're active. Um, then you need to make sure you are notified when there is a general meeting and they do not throw those very often. They do come fast and furious around convention time because there are certain things you have to get done. Right, A writing association has to give certain notice for these meetings to happen and then when you go to this meeting as an eager member who wants to participate in convention you're going to have to convince your writing association to send you as one of their delegates and if you're in a writing like mine um york simcoe where we are not it's a conservative stronghold we still have ndp members here that are you know active but we get two delegates so Chances are people who are already involved with the writing generally get those spots. Um, you know, better writings do open that up to newcomers. <laughs> Hopefully they warn them what to expect. But, you know, it's limited. So let's say you finally do secure one of those delegate spots, right? You navigate through those processes. Unless you are unemployed or underemployed, it's gonna cost you a few hundred dollars. It was even a few hundred dollars to participate virtually. Um, Now the next federal convention is in Hamilton. So you would need to travel to Hamilton. You would need to find accommodations and take time off and uh, attend convention. Then as a delegate, you would then try to get to the mic, you know, in order to truly participate or perhaps you're entering in the election. So there are already barriers in place to folks, mostly economical, so that who ends up shaping what comes out of convention, although we'll tell you it's contrived and predetermined anyway, even the people who have a shot at doing that generally have a certain class already, right? People who have the free time, the money, and the political knowledge to navigate how to do that, right? You can't just wait until convention's really buzzing like a month before. You will not get a delegate spot. Those general meetings have already been called. Um,
1: before that, I want to catch up on a couple of comments. Oh, good. So... I came to the NDP because of Jack, Jack Layton for anyone who doesn't know, but have since become a hardcore socialist. I wish the NDP would go back, would get its act together and become socialist again. Lace is saying, I'd say an ongoing, and this is so unbelievable. So I'd say an ongoing virtual accessible convention with with multiple times and dates to join and have your voice heard, a convention of the commons that is basically always happening which makes sense, which is an incentive for members to continuously be active and take part, but it only makes sense from a member point of view, not from the party point of view and' we'll, I I personally want to make sure people understand a lot of these things are very purposeful. the party knows this they know how to reach out to people for a hundred thousand donation emails a year, but they can't ask hey do you want to have input on this thing so uh and then, the fact that they still, uh, Ali says, the fact that they still charge that much for a virtual meeting is abysmal honesty. Honestly, a motion I had tabled before I left in the Ontario NDP to find out the cost differential between virtual and in person, it cost between 15 and $35,000 more to exclude people by having it in person. Sorry, I kind of went on a, a long rant there.
0: No, it's important that we include those perspectives. And to the first commenter, we're actually working on a special that's specific to the erasure of socialism from the NDP, from messaging, from policies uh, and general direction and, and how frustrating that is. So stay tuned for that. A lot of people, maybe in their first experience, give the benefit of the doubt. You know, for example, the last virtual convention, the chat is turned off. Uh, and this is now a common practice in council meetings. So, you know, we've all used Zoom at this point. We know how to work it, especially organizers, um, how to manage rooms and whatnot. And it's purposeful, right? When we're in our virtual spaces, those chats are ch- are cut off for the same reason. Writings aren't connected. It's so that we can't organize with one another effectively, right? So we can't be heard when we're not like at the mic. And in an in-person convention, I, um, It's funny because I think that they can actually control virtual a little bit more, even though they've denied that as an option. You know, I know that you have to travel to Hamilton now in order to get your say, so you have to be super enthusiastic about it. But, you know, those virtual conventions were something else where you were completely cut off from everybody else. You weren't on the floor. You couldn't see who's at the mic. You couldn't rally really behind anybody. There's no like applause to see how the room felt about what was said. They were not ideal. And so Ali yeah, the idea we paid hundreds of dollars just for that. And to experience like such tight control was just really demoralizing for a lot of people.
1: Uh, I do want to say uh Stanley Lee is saying uh, proximity bias for the win. That's the best way for them to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish for now.
2: Well,
0: Ontario generally has, you know, a pretty uh, good track record in terms of conventions going their way. We've had some surprises. You know, I was telling the crew here before we started, you know, there's not going to be a lot of hopeful moments in this broadcast, which, you know, we don't like doing. But folks will remember that uh, Tom Mulcair was blindsided at a convention. Uh, He did not expect to lose uh, the leadership review vote. And that was behind the scenes organizing. Mind you, there were parts of the establishment that were okay with this. And so it was facilitated to some degree. But, you know, um, organizing went on, surprises were had. So you never do know, but I generally just caution people away from getting their hopes up in terms of making a difference in the party at conventions, even if they do get there. I'll go back to Peter's question on, and, you know, Lace brought it up a People's Convention. We've toyed with many different ways from how you uh, structure the microphone, you know, who can speak at the microphone, um, preferencing first-time speakers, One of the things that drives me crazy about convention is the amount of time and space that are allotted to people who already have giant platforms. You know, so not only will you have your leader speeches, which are like huge blocks of time in the agenda, but then they are the first people at the mic—MPs, MPPs, union leaders—somehow. In person, I understand how they get to the mic first. There's a coalesce. Everyone's like, oh, look, Jamie West is here. Go ahead. You speak on, you know, this. You're the critic. It makes sense. Like, you know, people are starstruck a bit. They get that first shot at the mic. But virtually it was so fucking obvious that they were manipulating behind the scenes when it was supposed to be first person who hit, you know, uh, con mic, pro mic would have been the first person in line in your Zoom room. And lo and behold, Charlie Angus is first on the mic. Fred Hahn is first on the mic. You name it. And so in this space where members have paid hundreds of dollars to show up, they are given the least amount of space. And a shout out to the Socialist Caucus, which I know drives everybody nuts at convention. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. They have their tactics They have been effective sometimes, um, but they face so much slack for uh, their behavior at convention. But every single time, and it's supported by so many people, and then it's brought up in provincial council, and over and over and over again, is extending the amount of debate time at convention. You know, that's the first motion. I quizzed, who was it? Was it Jay? Jay, I was like, you better pass this test, right? What is like the first motion that's always called... At any NDP convention, and what is it?
1: To extend the time.
0: Yes, right. Uh, to amend the agenda. I, you know, put forth a motion to amend the agenda, and the chair is just like, no, no, like just no. We can't. It's not possible. Uh, we can't.
1: We can't sacrifice our MPs or MLAs or MPPs or our leaders filibustering this member event for you to have input in this party. Come on, that's just ridiculous.
3: It felt particularly ridiculous in the virtual space just because there, there's no real reason to limit the amount of time. Like you can just keep going as long as it takes. In person, I understand, you know, people have places to get to and and whatnot. But it was just really obvious that they wanted to limit the amount of time as much as possible. And it was just the most frustrating experience possible. It pissed me off how blatantly obvious it was. And
1: that's why I that was the first time I really noticed hyper partisanship and how fucking toxic partisanship is, where it's like everyone can see this. Everyone can see this. The person who cuts it off, the conversations going because it was virtual, there was like 80,000 groups on Facebook, on Twitter, and here and here, where people are talking and reacting to things. And it's someone points out one of the bullshit things. Oh my, they're just wasting time. No, the the filibustering MP who wants to spotlight on C-SPAN or whatever it is that plays it, they're the issue. And to the tune of, I had, I think it was the provincial one, I had called for the orders of the day which means we have to stop what's happening and get onto the agenda timeline. But it was Jagmeet who was speaking when I called for the orders of the day and the panic and the pissed off reaction begging me not to do the motion. It's, like, it's just, it's so obvious. And no one calls it. If you call it out, you get attacked.
0: Let's um, transition back to, because I see like Christine's now, She can. she's listening in. Um, When we're talking about like getting to convention being hard and generally inaccessible to a huge portion of the membership, we have to think of how many people put their hopes in the NDP to, you know, um, lift them out of legislative poverty to mandate a higher minimum wage, right? Like a lot of poor folks really count on the NDP and convention is just not an option. And the way that the party is designed, there are really no other avenues for participation. So, again, it was such a tightly controlled space. It was unique the last federal election in that how many people could actually participate, especially federally. Like, imagine the travel that is involved with a country as large as ours and um, the fact that it only happens once every blue moon, right? Once every two, three years. To limit that is just so frustrating because the technology is certainly there. First, we shouldn't have to wait two to three years. I say we, I'm not a member anymore, but people shouldn't have to wait this long to have policy discussions, right? Low budget town halls, virtual, this is so doable and it's done by grassroots organizations across the country. Very few people have not adopted a hybrid version into their gatherings at this point, at least more progressively minded ones, right? We get, Some folks gave us examples of hybrid conventions that they had just gone to and how they were success, right? There was meaningful participation. So right now, the NDP have ruled that it will be in person only with some virtual components, but they made it clear that to vote to debate and to take part in the elections, right? To be a candidate means you will have to be there in person. There's, they, There won't be any exceptions. And, you know, I imagine this is not sitting very well with members. I do want to say for
1: anyone who doesn't know and hasn't been to convention, convention is supposed to be the members event run by members, for members, for members to take part, but it's wholly controlled by anything but the
0: members. Jay, can you play what uh, Melissa Sam sent to us from Newfoundland and Labrador? Melissa has uh, quite a lot of experience with the NDP and... They wanted to participate, but again, we threw this together last minute, so we were lucky enough that they sent us a statement that we could just air. And I would like, perhaps, if Christine can hear it, maybe react to what Melissa has to say here.
4: It was extremely disappointing to see the decision made by the federal NDP executive to not facilitate a virtual option for the upcoming convention. Having the virtual option during the last federal convention was absolutely revolutionary. People who couldn't participate in the democratic processes of the party were able to engage for the first time for many members, creating an inclusive space for disabled rural and low-income people. It created a way to engage in the power structure of the party at a meaningful level for people who would otherwise not feel able or safe. We need a way for marginalized individuals to not just be included, but welcomed and prioritized. We need a way for everyone to have their voice heard in and by the new Democratic Party. We need an equitable way forward and a just system of governance. Without the opportunity for all members to engage, we are neither just nor equitable. This is not hard to do. I just attended my credit union's AGM online because we have 11 branches across roughly 1,500 kilometers. All it takes is a Zoom account. Polls are built in as our breakout room functions. It is easier than ever to plan and execute a virtual or hybrid event. Being exclusionary like this completely contradicts our own values. And this decision has effectively extinguished my hope for the future of the federal NDP. We need to practice the principles we preach as a party, the ones baked into our foundations as the union and cooperative party. Democracy, equality, equity, solidarity. We need a convention accessible to
1: all members. I want to also note that a lot of people here, Jesse, you kind of touched on it. A lot of people here accessible and they think a disability accommodation Accessible means accessible. So if you don't know how to take part, you can't access information. It's not accessible. If you can't take time off of your job, it's not accessible. If you're in school, if you're a student member, you you can't ditch school. You can't go for whatever reason. You are no longer welcome in the party because the same accommodations they have afforded themselves the government has afforded itself this accommodation to keep running. The party would have been insolvent if it just decided screw everything. Jesse, you talked about the federal um, election. There were, and this is the point I raised as an executive, that there were attendees from all over, coast to coast to coast, at random little ridings, nomination meetings, donating and spreading and supporting. How do you choose to, or why do you choose to exclude all of those members? And that's the question that's the most important because like it's been brought up, these are choices because the solutions are quite easy.
2: Yeah. um, I thought I'd pop on. I think that's a good segue. Um, it was really powerful to hear Melissa's message there. Do you want me to introduce myself or has that been done? <laughs> <Or> Please do. <laughs> Okay. Um so my name's Christine Wickner. Um I'm actually an elected member of Federal Council. So I'm elected to council um, as a BC women's rep and that happened at the last virtual convention that Melissa was referencing and yeah, I I think it it needs to be reiterated that that was a very exciting convention for a lot of folks because people were able to participate, you know, as a, a, mom with young kids, I don't know if I would have been able to make a trek to a convention like that. Um, and I'm facing similar, you know, um, obstacles uh, when I think about having to get to Hamilton in October and, um, uh, so I just want to I want to make it clear that I'm not speaking on behalf of the party at all. It's not um, the the um, that's not my place to do. Um, but I am speaking as somebody that, you know, uh, expected to represent women of British British Columbia. And so when um, when Jay started talking about, you know, the need, I mean, and we started talking about this right away after convention. Right, Jay? Like you started talking about how, um, well, first of all, Jay started talking about how there were problems with the convention, right? As as amazing as it was that so many people could access it, it was a bit messy for sure. The party definitely wasn't ready for that many people um, to be attending. And I think they weren't ready for that many grassroots members to attend. And I think we kind of scared them. <laughs> 100 Um, (laughs) percent um and so jay started working hard on you know there were some accessibility issues um there was a committee formed afterwards about um you know making sure that that didn't happen again that we would have an accessible convention in the future i think i don't know jay you could speak better to what kind of ended up happening with that committee. But then at a certain point, I know you started trying to bring resolutions forward um, to council to get to get us to approve the virtual nature um, or or to make it hybrid. And it just kind of got caught up in committee work and committee bureaucracy. Um, So they made Jay's resolution come to us on the policy committee, which I sit on, and they sort of coordinated so that We referred that to federal council who then referred it to this accessibility committee that isn't really very active. And people said that at federal council that, you know, how is an accessible accessibility committee that's not really meeting or active going to make this decision? And so then... The next thing that we heard after that federal council meeting where they, where we referred it to the accessibility committee, and there were so many concerns from so many people about that, the next thing we heard and the national director had announced to the provincial Ontario provincial council that it was go- it was not going to be hybrid, that it was going to be in person and that there was going to be hybrid components. So there's a lot of us on federal council that are very concerned and confused about how this decision was made. Like we were told that there was going to be one process followed. And then it, all of a sudden we heard from the grapevine that a different decision, that a decision had already been made <laughs> and we're left thinking, okay, like constitutionally, We're supposed to be the deciding body, you know, we're supposed to be making these decisions between conventions. And it just, it's, it's unfortunately another example of my experience with the NDP where they they keep elevating the levels of control to smaller and a smaller and smaller number of people. So whether it's in the BC NDP where the provincial council is supposed to be the governing body between convention and yet more and more powers are being given to the executive. This seems to have happened without even yeah I, like we're we're still confused as to um, how this decision was made. Um, and we're confused about the reason and it's like trying to figure out why like their logic and their rationale of not hosting it is kind of like nailing jello to a wall. <laughs> like because we've never because we've never had it officially on an agenda and we've never been able to debate it it becomes this very like, it's like a rumor mill. I hear that Ann said this in one meeting and -and so-and-so said this in this meeting. And, and then sometimes people just make stuff up on their own, like, Oh, well, it's probably too expensive. And you know, there's, There's answers to all of those questions like Melissa's dead on when she says the logistics shouldn't be a problem. The finances shouldn't be a problem. I mean, it's about priorities, (laughs) for sure. One of the things that, you know, (laughs) so frustrating one of the things that was in the email to federal councils was like this would have taken so much member consultation to decide on this and it's like yes that's why we started talking about it two years ago so we could have done that member consultation and hi I'm like the federal council member for, you know, for BC, like for women in BC, give me a list of the members. I'll call them. I'll do my job to represent women, but there's no mechanism for me to represent people. Um. So where we're at now is the, is the decision has technically been made, but that's why I started the petition. There is a petition online to sign um, and say that you're in support of this. And I just, cause I just want people to understand that there are people on council and the executive that really are sticking our necks out for this. And we really want to make this happen. We really strongly feel that um, in order to win and form government, which is what we should all be trying to do as member of the council and executive and leadership that we need to engage our grassroots members um, but we need folks to also like we need to show them that we have that support and that's where the petition comes in. Please make sure that if you haven't signed that yet, um, that you do. And because it, there's other things that I can do there as well. As soon as you sign the petition, I know what. Um, what province you're in, the EDA that you're in, I can connect you to the folks that you should be lobbying to. So your federal council, um, You know, regional representatives, if you're part of a a caucus or something like that, I can connect you to them and and make sure that they know how important this is to you and this issue is. Because I think that's what the party is not doing, is they're not teaching people how to use the mechanisms that are actually in place to make your elected officials work for you. They should be doing their jobs representing what you want for the party. And regardless of whether we win on this issue... um, um, it is a grassroots issue and we need to start, you know, sticking together on things like this. I think, you know, a lot of people are hesitant, um which because I'm which I'm sure you've talked about to to sort of put themselves out there on the side of. And I don't even like to talk about sides, but, um you know, has people are hesitant to really speak out publicly because sometimes they get a target put on their back. But there's. There's good solid support for this um, for this issue in particular and I would really encourage people um, to to help us get that um, get that base so that we can so we can make our case.
1: On the petition, the most important thing for me is if you share a petition, you share it at your writing, you share it in your networks or whatever. I had a lot of people when I resigned my roles, A lot of people reached out in shock, but it's because they were following what I was doing and supporting what I was doing in the shadows. It was basically sacrificing me and hoping that it accomplished the thing that they were supporting me and accomplishing. Get behind the petition. But I want to ask, and Jessa, I'm sorry if this is the question you had loaded. You said it's not about necessarily being successful or getting everything you want it's about connecting along the way but what is the point if they're not going to make it accessible they're basically telling a large amount of their marginalized members that they are going to be further marginalized within so at what point do you say be safe this isn't safe or let's keep fighting Sorry if I didn't articulate that while I'm trying to repress the anger of past events for me while I ask that.
2: No, I think I understand what you're saying, because it's something that I think about like a lot. (laughs) I think what you're asking, because something that I learned, I think at last convention, you know, we all left that experience. (laughs) We all experienced the same thing, but you experience it differently depending on who you are, um, how long you've been in the party, what your aspirations within the party were, yeah, who you are as a person, whether you you were attending as a disabled person or um, you needed certain accommodations. And so what I learned is like, you can't make people stay in an unsafe space. You can't ask people to stay in an unsafe space. So you have to give them the choice. And what I'm hoping with the petition, I think, is that they get the choice to opt into like a space that's sort of NDP adjacent, that they don't necessarily have to, like, let me go to the people that are unsafe with this 300 so far people signed up and let me be the person that takes the brunt of that because I'm already out there. (laughs) um and so I mean all I know is like I can't make people come on a path with me but I can try to offer some protection in the fact that you know it's a it's an anonymous petition and it is something I I talk about I think about a lot is like it's a chicken and the egg because the party is never going to be safe if we don't come together and you know, exercise our right as grassroots members to be the party. We are the party. But where does that leave people along the way? I guess.
0: Yeah. Because, I mean, Christine, you're you're, you're throwing up some real big red flags for folks, right? When we're talking about the new Democratic Party, you said things like unsafe spaces, like you acknowledge the party is unsafe and like I'm not... You don't have to convince me of that. I I understand exactly what you mean. And, you know, you also acknowledge that you feel like you're sticking your neck out and you are right. We, I know exactly what happens to people who are too loud in critiquing the party and how uncomfortable other people feel getting behind even that shield that you're, Mm -hmm. you know, offering to be for people. That Mm -hmm. is a very draining position to be in. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sure you realize that by now, but that's that's a very cautionary tale right like i know you're not you're not even asking people to like enter these spaces that they don't want to but i'm just like even for the audience there i can only imagine like a lot of people who have those rose-colored glasses on still are shocked to hear you speak like that about the ndp right that sounds um and is actually quite nefarious for grassroots members to feel like they are endangered to some degree by advocating for democracy in their party or accessibility in their party and, and and it's not just you we've had many many guests on that feel you know asking too many questions puts a target on you even you know genuine mm-hmm. well-phrased questions that aren't combative that's not what's expected of counsel you 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 talked about being confused on how a director is just deciding without votes without clear you know, mm-hmm. structure to that decision. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that just that is because that that position is undefined in our constitution and they are allowed to breach that constitution when they when they need to. Many, many, many documented cases of provincial directors and Ann McGrath, the national director, just completely disregarding the constitution and saying so to the executive or to council. It doesn't matter if you like this or not. This is the way it's going to be. This isn't a vote. I don't even need your letter of recommendation. You know, we heard around the Ontario convention uh, shenanigans there. The council was just basically told, deal with it. And so, and you also hit on another point of equity committees, not being given the tools to actually do their job. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, my answer to that is, is they were never designed to be what you want them to be. Those are tokens, right? The Women's Committee, the Equity Committee, those are to justify the party, to make it look like it's progressive. But in reality, they were never, you know what I mean? Like there is no email list.
2: Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because I have had a different experience in different spaces. So the reason that I put my name forward to be the BC Women's Rep is because I had had an uh An okay experience being on the Women and Gender Rights Committee um, on the BCNDP side. Um, So, we actually did meet and we put policy resolutions forward and we would liaise with the ministers and things like that. So, and I've talked to like older New Democrats, people that have like a much longer history in the party than I do. Um, And they report times where it was, um, you know, committees were active and like conventions were not just theatrical performances like they would prefer them to be um, now like the liberal conventions and things like that. So I do. I don't know. I have this like maybe I still have rose colored glasses. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, I think I probably do because I wouldn't still be like actively volunteering my time in this. Um, if I didn't have some hope for the party, but I think, yeah, I think that I, I, from, from those like kind of intergenerational tales that I hear. I feel like the systems are in place. It's supposed to work a certain way. And there's just, and there's a, there is a lot of effort to make it seem like that's how it's working. Um, But it just has been like you said, there's been an increased centralization, intra- increased control at the top. And it's not just our party. It's every party. It's not just electoral politics. It's every institution. I think that's because why, it- you
0: know, the discussion around how convention is structured, you know, after people get there, right after you make it accessible, as accessible as possible, because of the need to make sure those committees go nowhere now, Right. To keep on that that guise of we are democratic, there are people involved, but we're going to have plenty of examples of how that process is uh, manipulated to thwart uh, many efforts. And like Christine's right, like there's been actual tactical changes made, you know, that we can document from the time of Malcare in particular, in particular, even at Leighton, to be honest, that started to bring power to the top and where there was an explicit decision made that the resolutions passed at convention would not in any way be obligated to be included in the messaging that the party used from then on in. So that Mm -hmm. was part of, you know, Jay's question is just like, okay, let's say we can get as many people there as possible. Um, you know, the powers that be have spent the last few years perfecting those levers of control. But I do think, I know it's, uh, a shame and i do agree it should be hybrid i i imagine the most disruptive you could be would be in person it's it's i would say it's near impossible in a virtual setting to be disruptive and you need to be disruptive in order to get what you want at convention like it needs to be a surprise it needs to be coordinated and um there's just too many button mute buttons uh involved mm-hmm. uh virtually that that kind of prevent that so i i hope any kind of hybrid option that comes forth you know like organizers within the the party that do need to connect people and mount efforts you know if that's the path you're going in the party then you know that's a that's a difficult task trying to coordinate people online and in person i just thinking back to the virtual Uh, convention where we had like a discord and a speaking Mm -hmm. channel and people were assigned certain categories and that was a big learning curve for people to do so now once you have a hybrid version it's going to be like oh my god where are we at and uh, meanwhile head office has kind of been working on this right like you've been working for the last two years on how to make it more accessible they have been working the last two years to learn from the mistakes that got us any inroads that we did get um in those virtual spaces right like they they don't want those refunds again jay and they don't (laughs) want the bad the bad press that goes with it but um
2: well i mean i think they've banked on in person being easier to control to be honest
0: but you know who's going to travel we and i can't believe we haven't mentioned this covid You know, like Anne McGrath's messaging for her explanation doesn't acknowledge uh, the risk that folks will need to take on top of having to have the time and the money, but expose yourself to COVID during travel and during the convention. Masks will not be mandatory. Um, We know this from NDP previous uh, events. They'll Mm -hmm. be suggested at the door and whatnot. And so immunocompromised people have just been told that they are actually not welcome to shape Mm -hmm. their party at all was that a big part of the drive to make it accessible um yeah that's where you get a lot of your support too the disabled community has been shut out of this party repeatedly
2: yeah absolutely and the other one um that we hear a lot is climate like why are we all jumping on a fossil fuel <laughs> aeroplane to to do business that could be done from home and would be you know better for everyone and the planet. So yeah, I mean it's all of it for us it's just like a no-brainer decision. Um I do hear what you're saying where some people it's it's so interesting the different impressions that people have about um about convention because I've heard the same thing like well, you know, it's not like the virtual was that accessible cuz you know, we were there was concern about whether people were speakers lists and 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 things like that, that could be rigged with technology. Um, I do think sometimes we give the party a little too much credit in terms of like what they're actually thinking about manipulating and what is just like they were totally caught off guard.
1: But at the end of the day, the party's equity statement says that they can't prevent people taking part in the party. Our constitution says that you cannot prevent people from taking part in the party. The disability committee was saying it. The accessibility was saying you can't make things inaccessible. The executive listened and determined, well, you got to go consult. It makes no sense. The, the bullshit in the constitution, the equity statement, all that is front facing PR. The equity committees are front facing PR.
0: One thing I wanted to ask you, Christine, before we go to Chris, who's going to kind of he's from B.C., but it's going to focus on the 2018 convention and the joys of trying to get a resolution passed that the party does not want to hit the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, but that brings me back to the last federal convention. And there was a petition that generated out of B.C., but was signed by members across the country in relation to John Horgan and his use of the RCMP on land offenders, indigenous land offenders, right? Um, A petition to censor him of sorts. And instead, Anne McGrath and those who plan the convention responded by giving him a keynote speaker spot, (laughs) right? Uh, A lot of us tuned out. We were too busy plotting uh, for the next session of uh, resolutions to listen to that nonsense. But what I get frustrated, I'll be honest, like, Why do you think they're going to react any different to this petition the way that they just spat on all those members that signed last time? Right. Like there was like no reaction from the party at all, like massive efforts to shame them into doing something to stand apart from the actions of the B.C. NDP in that moment. And instead they highlighted him. It was like a big fuck you. To mm-hmm. all those people who had openly been critical and had done what you said, go out and make me do this, right? Go out and show that members did not appreciate this in droves. There was no movement. In fact, it was almost spiteful, their reaction, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, I think any time we're doing any type of organizing, I think, especially like, on the left especially progressive like real progressives um i think we have to expect to lose you just have to expect that that's what's going to happen i think Anjali said it best uh, that, like the day after she was disqualified and she was just she just said power is doing what power was designed to do but you always have to look at the next thing so maybe we win on hybrid convention if we do that would be a huge signal of of the grassroots. If we don't like what's our next thing, but we have to keep, I think the, the thing that I find frustrating, I think in these politics and I get it, um, because we're all like under the, (laughs) the terrible pressure of capitalism is that, you know, people think, okay, I have this one thing and I'm going to, you know, this is the thing that's going to make it happen. And it's never like one thing every, I think any like big social change and I'm new to activism. Like, like, honest to God, I I think people always think that I'm more like, I know more than I do. Um, I didn't come from student activism. I don't have a poli sci degree. I just started volunteering on campaigns when I was like 25. But I'm trying to be a quick study. I like woke up one day as a mom and was like, holy shit, what did I do bringing children into this world? And so I'm trying to be a quick study. And it seems like there's always these like... I would call them sprints in organizing. I would say what we did at convention last time, the virtual convention, it was fun. It was exciting. I had a good time. I got to meet a whole bunch of cool folks, but it was a sprint. We didn't really keep the marathon going. And I get why we didn't. People were disappointed. People were, um, you know, felt shut out, angry, burnt out. But I think maybe that's what we're missing is that like deep organizing the deep organizing required to 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 unite some front for me it's just like basic democracy i think we can all agree we want a more democratic party and a and a party that that doesn't divide and that's what this decision is doing is it's dividing us it's dividing us on class it's di- dividing us on ability it's dividing us on race it's a- dividing us on uh, family situation and so i think that that's that's why i wanted to to do the petition on something that is like fundamentally we can all agree that we all just want a voice Certainly um,
0: connecting the grassroots through petitions and deep organizing is the only way to go into convention and be um, effective in any way. Um, The fact that they're siloed off, members are siloed off from one another is a detriment. So any work that you do there is certainly beneficial because you're putting like minded people together. Nothing Terrible should come from that at the very least, right? It's something to to build (laughs) on. So my frustration isn't with you, I know. Just you know, this seeing people kind of go at it and fearing that they'll be let down. But you know, like you said, it's not like all your eggs are in that basket. We know that it's not the only path for for everyone or even you, right? So. Thank you for coming on and being so candid and sharing your efforts, and um, we'll be sure to share the link to the petition through New Chat as well. Thank you, Christine. So we're going to go to Chris. Chris is going to kind of take us back to 2018, like I talked about. Um, There was a particular resolution that folks had already spent years uh, trying to gain traction around to get on floors, convention floors, a debate. This happens in every province. It's around Palestine and Israel. It's a contentious issue within the party for some reason. And uh, although we discovered at the last federal convention that 80 some odd percent of people actually supported that particular motion. So once it got to the floor, there was clear support for it. There was certainly a lot of efforts to prevent it. And I just want to give people a little bit of background on resolutions to give them an idea of what we're talking about, you know, just really high level convention is supposed to be a collection of ideas that come from the members and we discuss debate on them and then vote. And then whatever vote passes, those great ideas then become NDP policy. The reality is the same barriers that exist for people getting into convention the ideas face even more barriers. So they too have to get passed at a local level by a certain threshold with certain time limits and constraints and quorums that need to be met. They need to be structured and worded in a certain way to qualify and categorize correctly thousands of members across the country put forth their ideas. So in the end, you have hundreds of resolutions to go over. And the party designs debate time to be very limited. So in reality, out of the hundreds and hundreds of great ideas that are get put forth, you maybe discuss four or five in each category, six to seven categories, six or seven categories. So we don't get to a lot of policy talk.
3: Four to five, if you're lucky, more like two to three maximum. It's like at the beginning,
0: the slower, the certain <laughs> sections. And, but the reality is, Santiago, like we get to exactly how many the party decides, right? Like I, I do see it happen behind the scenes and whatnot. So it's nothing about this is accidental if you've seen it happen. Um, and so I'll be curious to hear from Chris, like exactly what 2018 was like, because I know a lot of people are, were frustrated and that's why it was so exciting when uh, the policy was passed or a similar policy was passed in 2021. But again, so these resolutions, you have hundreds of them. Well, somehow someone needs to decide which ones are gonna go first, right? If we can only get to three or four a section, How do we know which ones are the most important? And up until the last convention, that was decided by like five or six people that had been handpicked essentially by uh, the establishment to determine what was most important to all of the NDP members collectively. And usually uh, it's the usual suspects that hit the top prioritization um, issues that we are already all decided on. You know, so um, we will spend 20 minutes to unanimously declare that the NDP is in favor of public health care even though that has been in our policy book since time immemorial essentially right so that predetermined outcome that we said would be a theme of this discussion the party wants to make sure certain items rise to the top well you know they've shifted prioritization a little bit so that it it will be done democratically we'll get into that a little bit later because It's not, it's still not even, it's a process that has zero transparency. We know staffers are voting on that with instructions from HQ. We know that union delegates are voting on prioritization with instructions from their uh, folks who do have delegate lists, something grassroots organizers advocating for, you know, uh, Free Palestine do not have. So what happens is whatever HQ and uh, the cooperative unions decide will be the top items that we discuss. That's it. Right. So, um, for folks out there that are getting really excited that you have great ideas to put forth for convention, uh, buckle up, you're going to hear what it's like to try to really get one passed. So Chris, you heard, we were talking about, uh, convention shenanigans, I think is what you called it or fuckery. <laughs> Maybe I can't remember the term you used when you messaged me Yeah, that's feedback. the term I used. Fuckery. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean, but uh, I wasn't actually at the 2018. I've heard many stories, though, right? But um, maybe our audience haven't. So, introduce yourself a little bit, and then you know, get right into her. Like, what? What did you really want to come on here and uh, tell people about? What would they be surprised to hear there?
5: Um, well, considering the fact that... Well, first, uh, who are
0: you? Sorry, that was a two-part question. Sure,
5: <laughs> no problem. So my name is Chris Markovich. Um I was a federal and uh, provincial um, NDP member for over 10 years. Um, I uh, worked at the federal uh, head office in Ottawa for a few years um, on the uh, database project. Um, many NDP members will know that as populace. Um, And uh, I was also... Um, the uh, writing Association president for North Island Powell River uh, on Vancouver Island uh, for the 2019 federal election. And I was also on the executive uh, or the um, writing Association uh, for the provincial uh, NDP in the 2017 election, um, also in the North Island Riding. So <clears throat> I have a lot of experience with uh, with volunteering, with campaigning, with, um, you know, working, you know, closely uh, with, um uh, parliamentary members as well as uh, folks in uh, head office and uh, c- across the ridings um and in 2018 <clears throat> excuse me the uh, federal convention uh was held and um one of the uh, many resolutions that uh you know ma- actually made it to the pol- policy uh floor for debate uh, or was being voted on to be added to the policy book was a um, motion on palestine and um Uh, included a call uh, to oppose parliamentary efforts, uh, quote-unquote, to uh, undermine nonviolent movements, uh, i.e. BDS, uh, to achieve just resolutions uh, in Israel and Palestine. And that um, resolution uh, basically wanted to expand on the existing Middle East policy. Um, They wanted to use uh, BDS uh, movement language in the resolution. And It had the support of 28 uh, electoral district associations, uh, the federal um, uh, counterparts to riding associations uh, for the provincials um, and a number of current and former MPs. um, But uh, it was defeated by, I think, 11 votes at the end um, because uh, at the last minute, and I actually watched this happen uh there was a huge wave and people were running to get inside you know to to throw in their vote at the last second before they tile the doors you know that's what they do when they you know close the the doors before the the vote is taken uh so that included a bunch of staffers a bunch of MPs um and you can tell which ones were which because you know you, i've never seen people in suits run that fast um you know just c- piling in at the last minute to to cast can't their trust votes people in suits <laughs> yeah exactly um and the most uh, notable ones were, um, of course, um, uh, Alain uh, Laverdier, who was uh, at the time the foreign affairs critic, uh, Randall Garrison, who has uh, um, been very vocal uh, in his pro-Israel stance, uh, and Marie Rankin from uh, Victoria. Um, they all went in their last minute and, and struck it down. Now, the other key, uh, key notable thing, which actually, if you read uh, an article from Ricochet Media, uh, they go into a lot of detail. Into what happened that day, as well as a couple of other uh, left wing um, uh, media uh, organizations. Um, Not only did they stack the deck uh, in that way against uh, the proponents of that uh, resolution, but they also scheduled the vote at the exact same time (laughs) that they were putting forward the free tuition resolution prioritization vote. So they made sure that they not only would win, but also that any attempt to, you know, fill the room would, uh, by supporters would also fail. So um, there was a lot of, as I mentioned, fuckery that went on that day, uh, that morning. In fact, it was 8.45 on a Sunday morning when they did this. Um, and and the, uh, the proponents of the resolution that I talked to the night before said that it was supposed to be voted on on Saturday night, but at the last minute got shuffled to Sunday morning. So they did yeah. that on purpose as well. Um, and it's not the only time you know we've seen stuff like that happen as you've uh, no doubt alluded to, uh, at the Ontario convention and then again in the Federal Convention uh, a, a few years later and what happened with uh, with John Horgan uh, in BC. And there's there's obviously stuff to be said about that as well, um, no doubt uh, that you've already discussed. but um, that was the biggest example that I had seen. Um, of, uh, you know, procedural movements to, to ensure that, you know, what the party wanted, the party got irrespective of what its members were putting forward. And, you know, as uh, you and Jay al- also noted, you know, it's really hard to get any resolutions uh, to a convention because, you know, you have 338, you know, federal ridings, you know, you may not always have that many electoral dis- district associations, but you have a lot of writings with a lot of resolutions, and it's a lot to pour over. So you know, I'm not discounting the fact that you know uh, the executive council has a lot of work to do. They do, but in the end, there 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 comes a time when you see a resolution that has so much broad support, but gets very very low on the priority list for a reason. It's not by accident. And I think that's what uh, listeners uh, and viewers of this show may not realize is that there's a lot more going on than just, oh, well, we didn't win, right? And I was listening to a little bit of the show before I came on and you know hearing what Christine was saying about, you know, sometimes we don't always win, but we'll push this thing and then maybe we'll get there. That's not necessarily the case. <laughs> it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't matter how hard you push. There'll always be procedural movements to ensure that you don't win regardless of how many times you try.
0: Yeah, that's one of the points like we haven't hit on yet is, you know, the fact that they use Robert's rules, which is terribly inaccessible to most people. You know, they don't spend much time explaining it to anybody. Usually the orientation sessions are during debate sessions, which are coveted. So you're not going to go to them and um, they don't even follow it all the time. Uh, everyone can see the chair with the earpiece in and taking direction. You challenge the chair and it simply just goes to the other chair that was also hired by Anne McGrath or Lucy Watson and have very specific instructions for that predetermined outcome. So it's like this feign of democracy. So it's, it's interesting because I, I have done in-person conventions, but virtual is so much more fresh in mind. And I have forgotten about all the shenanigans that go on in person in terms of structural, right? And... uh the reprioritization committee and fiasco, there is um, another joke, you're, you're right, like the Palestine motion for the last Ontario uh, convention was dead last, dead last, considering all the um, organizing that had gone on around it, and the efforts that, you know, grassroots folks have to do to reach all these writings and people to gain traction around an idea. And, um, dead last. And then I, I sit in a meeting, you know, the reprioritization vote, it turns into a big schmazzle and, um, Brian Topp just stands up there and just says, nope, that's it. That like, that's what your appeal is. Your appeal is to the same people who told you that it was no priority to them whatsoever. You can make all the arguments you want. You can pack the room with supporters who are vocal about it. And in the end, a party insider just, uh, gavel to the, to the table, No." No. So I want to juxtaposition that to the successful Palestinian motion, as we call it in 2021, you know, that was much celebrated. It was really the only bright spot we came out of the last convention with. um, Which since has not done anything to push the party in the right direction. However, you know, it was a victory in that moment, but so hard fought, so hard fought. Um, the filibuster. Y'all remember the filibuster? So like if we're talking about fuckery and trying to prevent uh, debate, the Palestine motion, I believe, was number two in that particular category. Either way, it came right after a motion to deal with the crisis in India and the farmers in India. And the party had a filibuster ready. It was so... (laughs) Horribly orchestrated as well. So a filibuster is when people talk and talk and talk um, for a particular purpose, like to prevent an outcome. You, You know, we can't vote on something if we don't get to it. Right. So the idea was to take this motion um, that related to India and stretch it as long as possible. Amendments were made. Right. People had these beautifully crafted amendments. They had rebuttals to amendments and speeches drafted for the rebuttal to an amendment. And um, clearly the idea was to they couldn't stretch it long enough, but they were going to allow the Palestine motion to hit the floor but only enough time to have one pro one con. They didn't want it to devolve into an actual debate on the issue. Right. So again, it's just knowing the amount of control that comes from the director down and none of this is by mistake. I disagree with Christine. None of this is because they were overwhelmed. It was carefully crafted and manipulated and orchestrated and, um, on top of all that again there's a need to remind folks that there's a large portion of union delegates that attend convention that number was increased federally at the last convention also under really suspicious circumstances and like we have to talk about it um the inc- this particular motion that was put forth was rated number 1 in its its section, even though nobody understood what that motion meant. And the reason it was prioritized, number one, is because we know that union delegates were sent emails telling them to prioritize that, number one. And staffers were also told, and any other delegates that, you know, um, were getting communications were told to prioritize this particular motion that most members read it and didn't understand. Or oh, it wasn't first, it was like second. And what was that motion? It increased the percentage of union delegates- uh, at convention, so delegates that aren't necessarily NDP members, but that are appointed by their p- specific unions and then have equal voting power within the convention. So, you know, it starts to make it so that even if you get the numbers, even if you uh, rally the delegates in terms of grassroots, if you want to prioritize issues that aren't, you know, already part of the predetermined outcome, right, These I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, mm. agreements that go on between the unions and uh, the party establishment. You know, that's a real uphill battle at that point.
2: Mm-hmm. And, yeah,
0: uh, yeah. yeah, sorry. That, and just to finish that off, that this motion passed, uh, even though they didn't have time to debate. It was so clear that HQ absolutely needed this to pass without exception. All the rules went out the window. There was still people lined up at the con mic. The time was out. They called to a vote. And um, even though there was nobody who understood what that motion did. Uh, I wish we had the wording. It was just so convoluted, included numbers. Nobody understood. And uh, yeah, it, it it passed. And um, it's just, I don't think people realize that until, because I know when I was sitting in the Discord in that last virtual um, convention, there were so many people just shocked by the resistance and the fuckery. You know, like they didn't expect it, even though they're in politics and it's part of politics. And I guess like it was it was really like disheartening. So how did you feel in that, you know, moment in 2018 when you're seeing that resistance and, and then losing by 11 votes, like that's maddening.
5: Yeah. Um, I wasn't as affected by that particular vote. I don't think I really thought about it that much until I came back and, um, in BC, I'd actually signed an open letter um, to uh, then Premier John Horgan um, calling on them to stop uh, Site C and <clears throat> uh, watching the you know the series of events that unfolded after that uh, open letter uh, was sent and then the subsequent um, BC MEP uh, convention um, the following year. Um, it was clear that no one was going to listen to us um, because we had, I, I don't recall exactly how many, you can look it up in the uh, TIE, there's an article in there. I think we had something like at least 100 to 200 uh, signatures from various um, you know, folks within the party, uh, various um, you know, organizations, activists, like um, we were all NDP members and we were all calling on them to put a stop to it. And the, the the message that we got over and over and over was it's you know uh, pass the point and no return. And at that time, the project, I believe was around eight to ten billion dollars. And we are now at the point and the the project is still not finished, by the way. Um, and there's been lots of stuff that's been happening uh, in the last you know number of months uh, that have delayed the project even further. And now we're looking at uh, a cost of over $20 billion. And that's before the project is ever finished. So it could go even higher than that. And um, it was then that several people close to me decided to tear up their memberships, um, including the then president of the Provincial Writing Association that I was a member of. She publicly tore up her, uh, her membership and said, I'm leaving the party. I'm done. Like, if you guys won't even listen to your own members on this open letter, there's no point in me being a member anymore. And that really, I think, kind of shook me because I saw fuckery on the federal and the provincial side. And, you know, I, I it was only confirmed for me when I went to convention and, um, you know, saw some of the same stuff happening, you know, certain resolutions getting prioritized over others, um, a lot of the same rhetoric being used with little to no um you know real policy being implemented. And um, you know, getting back to what you said about uh, you know, the the resolution and priority and the fact that there was really little to no debate, I'm, you know, I I haven't looked at the party's constitution uh in uh, a few months, but I don't know what's been updated. I'm willing to bet mo much of what was discussed at the con- last few conventions hasn't been put into the policy book um and likely never will. Um you know the the Palestine resolution may have you know gotten like the you know the thumbs up in terms of the votes, but it got almost no attention, right? And again, like you said, that's for a reason. Um, but um when 2020 rolled around and the second raid on West Sohetan territory took place by the RCMP, which again is controlled by the provincial government, i.e. the BCNEP, um, it was at that point I said I was done. Um, with a party. So that's kind of like a little bit of the timeline um, as to where, you know my uh where my loyalties lay and you know, where my uh, moral compass uh, turned. And i I decided I just couldn't be a member anymore, you know. um I I couldn't deal with, you know the the kind of um revolving door. Of you know big business and um, you know industry lobbyists is effectively taking over um, you know political parties. In um, BC and Alberta in particular, the oil and gas industry has huge pull with uh, the uh, the NDP. And it's their ties to the federal party and the federal party's lack of backbone in calling them out on their bullshit um, that's really really highlighted here. And I think that going into um, uh, this Alberta election, we've actually seen that already come into play. Ra- Rachel Notley herself has said that you know you know she supports the oil and gas industry, that you know we should be working with them. Um, you know, she, they re- uh, Alberta NDP recently announced that they're going to be eliminating uh, the corporate tax rate uh, or keeping it as low as possible, even lower than the. Um, uh, Than the Saskatchewan government, which are conservatives. I'm um, gonna.
0: I'm just gonna interrupt you there because we are gonna yeah. have a discussion down the road on like how policies, how this then impacts policies down the road yeah. and the okay, erasure sure. yeah, of, sure. of socialism. But mm-hmm. um, thank you for your contributions in terms of convention. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, we just have 15 minutes left in the live stream and I'm going to transition on to internal elections within uh, the convention. So we're going to sign off with you, Chris. I really okay, appreciate your sure. input there. And uh, we're definitely going to be in touch in terms of talking about um, NDP policy and how that's really uh, let folks down. So uh, awesome. Well, <laughs> thank, uh, thank you. you for
5: having me here. Um, you know, as you've noticed, uh, I'm always willing to have a chat and uh, I will go at length if I need to. <laughs>
0: awesome. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Care, oh, thank you. I just wanted to add something, too, uh, about what Chris said there. Um, I don't so, so much think it's a lack of backbone that comes from the uh, federal party, but the fact that they actually agree with what's happening, you know, that they maybe don't personally agree with um, the actions of the RCMP, but that playing the popular position is what's needed in politics, that Machiavellian approach and they're perfectly content with each provincial party doing what it thinks it needs to be popular, not right, you know?
3: And what's frustrating about that is it doesn't even work, you know? Like they've just given up on any sort of moral position and they keep going more and more authoritarian and and it doesn't get them any more seats, it doesn't get them any more votes you know, like all of these messes, you know, like about all these questions about how do you plan a convention properly? How would you like, what would the ideal be? Well, the truth is, the answer lies within the thousands of members, you know, I think about like the last episode, um, where um, you're talking about how, you know, there's always people with creative solutions within a movement. And, you know, like, the answers are there, if you empower the people to bring those solutions. But instead, like, They're that holding on to control is costing them so much it's not like it's not even justifiable on like like if you abandon morals and you're like okay authoritarianism is needed for efficiency to actually no it doesn't even work because they're not winning anything so it's just sorry it's just so frustrating you know
1: do Uh, they want to win or is their system predicated (laughs) on not winning the question
0: well their salary is not dependent on either these people making the decisions but yeah like we wanted to talk about the impact and that is one of the impacts Santiago is they alienate the very people they require free labor from right this is the party that you know is doing better in fundraising but still lags behind the other parties so come election time it it does require people to spend a lot of their free time. They need to be inspired. And when just like in anything, you see this happen over and over again, like you see Kevin Clark bursting into the Toronto mayor's debate because he was not given any avenue to speak. Right. And so then he needs to be disruptive to be heard. And that is what happens with members. Right. So their petitions are met with hostility, suspicion and then ignored or worse, you know, like a spiteful kind of response. Yeah, investigations. And, you know, organizing a convention is met with the same kind of resistance and whatnot. And and there are no other avenues in between. And so what happens to people when they are denied a voice over and over and over again, they either rip up their membership cards and leave and find other avenues, the avenues that Blueprints of Disruption points folks to, Right actual activism, or they suffer, right? They get burnt out. They get disillusioned. We lose them. They drink the Kool-Aid. They think that that's what's needed to win. And only an NDP win is what will solve the world's problems. And um, they will do whatever it takes to get there, right? And then you talk to people in BC who did that, who got their people elected, who participated in their conventions and got on their executive, and they're fucking nowhere, they right worse, right? So, I don't know, Santiago. we talk about this a lot. Um, where we truly believe that the only solution is to essentially burn it down. And I don't, we, we don't say that publicly very often. And we give space to people who do want to fight within the party. And I get that. But, um, to be candid, you folks are wasting people's energy and yeah. giving them hope where there is none. To be honest, this episode was to point out to people that the. Go to convention, spend hundreds of dollars, get someone to watch your kids, travel, expose yourself to COVID. You will just end up burnt out, disappointed, maybe a few more contacts, but you could have made those in better spaces.
3: Yeah, that's <laughs> essentially like that. That that is what it is, because nobody left that convention feeling inspired or motivated. You know, like I remember the energy around, you know, like the Discord chat and everything before and afterwards and just how burnt out everyone was after. And you think of how much weight, like we talk a lot about wasted energy on the left and like just how much wasted energy goes into Everything around convention, you know, all of this energy into getting these uh, resolutions created and then trying to get them passed. And even if they pass, oh, it doesn't matter because they're not even going to put it in the policy book or they're not ever going to talk about it again. And it's all like it just disappears into the void. And when it comes to the actual election, they'll just say whatever they think is popular and not at all reflective of what the members actually want. And And then they'll lose the election. And then it's like all of this energy. just anywhere else would be more efficient you know anywhere else like it and it does almost it does almost feel like you know like a controlled opposition where it's just like this whole created for us to like waste our time and and
0: like when you pay to be a member of something you don't expect to have to battle your way through it all that's not right that's not right and i know it's the reality but like you don't actually have to be in that space at all Right. Like you don't have to be a convention to push an issue at all, not at all. If you want them to move on free transit, if you want them to move on real reconciliation or whatever the issue is, you need to get as many people as possible to make as much noise as possible and not on the convention floor where the doors are tiled, you know, like out in public. Where mm-hmm. people who aren't involved in the party can make noise, who you can reach more people, but you can see when when Christine's talking, and from my experience getting kicked out of the party, that like when you organize like that, you you know that fear is built in, that repercussion is built in, and um, that's really damaging to folks who want to keep working in those circles. I said we'd talk about internal elections, and also that we'd have a hard stop. So I'll mm-hmm. give folks the Coles notes, right? Like we definitely have to talk about. The At convention, the executive is elected, you heard Christine talk about it, uh, council is selected through all these different means that, you know, we can't get into the details, um, but the Constitution says that it's those people that run the party, right? Just like a government, those are our MPs, our MPPs, those are different representatives for different equity-seeking groups and locals and all kinds of, of, of whatnot, and they're supposed to make the decisions. Right. So those elections are supposed to be really important. And the same fuckery that Chris talked about happens around the elections. I can tell you firsthand, I've run in quite a few of them now. Um, And they do do whatever it takes. They aren't, it's, Manipulative. It's an advantage is given to the slate of candidates that are selected by the establishment, a clear advantage. Things like access to meetings that we are not afforded, access to lists of delegates that we are not afforded, instructions that we are not afforded, endorsements from MPs and MPPs that are they are explicitly told you don't endorse anybody outside of who you've been told to endorse, regardless of how you feel about them or how you've worked with them in the past. And so the predetermined outcome is very important in these elections, so much so that even an MPP took a spot on the council or on the executive in the last Ontario um, convention. You know, Sarah Singh got a spot, even though they already have a very influential position in the party, took it away from a member who paid hundreds of dollars to go to convention, launched a campaign from scratch. And meanwhile, an MPP just puts up their name lines, their friends behind them, and then again, gets a vote in the say. So it's ironic, uh, Jay was attacked a lot for saying this, but, you know, those folks that make up the executive and the council, they can remove that director, that director that we have spent episodes and episodes talking about how they rule the party, a democratic party, in a very authoritarian way, in a way that centralizes um, the politics of the party and isolates its members, does really horrible things, like things that just should not fucking happen and that many of you pay to happen and um, promote it um, out of fear of the alternative. And that's normalizing the shit, right? Um, I think participation in convention at this point, unless it, you are actively mobilizing um, against what the status quo is gonna be offering, um, you're just contributing to this, to be honest. Um, that sounds, it feels really harsh. I'm, I normally try to walk that line a little lighter, but, um, It was, it's really frustrating to see people still think that simply getting people to convention isn't just going to burn more people out.
1: Can I ask something about, you had talked about internal elections. So brief. I have, I have a feeling and I want a quick, I want this out there for people to start questioning it. I believe that the inaccessibility of this convention, the federal convention is for a very specific reason they're trying to protect Chignit one more time. Just like we saw with Andrea, just like we saw in Saskatchewan and in DC with their leadership races, I believe they don't want the pissed off grassroots members being able to have a vote. They've invested everything in the social media presence of their icon or whatever the mascot's called now. But the more popular he is, The more money he generates internally, the more job security there is for the person who the director is the person who controls everything, who has infected everything and is the one person members can gather and call for a vote to remove. They're doing everything at every place that members can gather to have an impact and they're controlling it. So do you think that potentially one of the main reasons for this fuckery is to protect Jagmeet.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it reminded me of another point that we have to tell everybody. This is such a burn on the NDP and we love to burn them, honestly. Sorry for folks who don't like that. Um, They tried to hold this in Manitoba. Manitoba said, fuck no, because Jagmeet's image right now is so toxic nationally and his saddling up to power at a time where most people are suffering. So whether or not you agree with that, deal that they've made most Canadians are not sitting very well with it um as we can see and um, Manitoba in particular was just like no you're not coming anywhere near us during election period get that convention out of here so they had to delay it and put it in Hamilton Uh, I believe one other place actually rejected it but I can't confirm that and um absolutely this is a Andrea right so a reminder that the Ontario Provincial uh convention was purposely delayed to the massive objection by members who were dying to get rid of Andrea at the time. And they positioned that timing so that it would happen so close to the election against Ford that members would dare not risk having no leader going into that election. We had no choice but to approve Andrea for another run at it. And that was because the people who controlled how convention shapes up are tied to Andrea's reign. Their job, essentially, when you lose that bad and you lose your leader, generally you walk away. And that's what happened. Michael Balagus did almost immediately have to walk away. That's Andrea's chief of staff. And then Lucy Watson now has, she is stepping away. And that was a natural transition after losing so many elections. So they are not making decisions based on um, what would be good for the membership? What would be even good for the party? What would be good for Canada or Canadians or whatever kind of shit you think politics is for? They're doing it to protect their jobs, just like most other people that need to pay the bills and have almost no scruples or, uh, courage to do the right thing, regardless of what it costs them. Um, they are just designing this for their jobs, right? Um, And we all suffer as a result. That's why, like, we put so much emphasis on these director positions because they got to go, right? Any democratic institution can't be ruled from the top like that with someone who has such a vested interest in having the status quo maintained.
3: This feels like just a big metaphor for capitalism itself, you know, and much like in all things capitalism, like getting rid of the directors is, is good, but like, it's always a certain kind of person that ends up in those positions, you know? It's the same thing, like when we get angry at CEOs, and it's like, well, what would happen if we actually got rid of them? They'll be replaced by another asshole who's going to do the same thing, right? And this really shows, like, it, like if if your goal is to tackle capital like to dismantle capitalism, the NDP can't even dismantle capitalism within its own structure, like within its own party. Like, they still use
0: first past the post, so don't talk <laughs> to me about electoral reform.
3: Yeah, like, the, like just to be like. Absolutely clear. This is not the place to do it because they can't even dismantle that internally. Donate today (laughs) before
0: midnight. Yeah, we've done absolutely, and I think we've done a good job of kind of demonstrating, you know, this portion of it. In terms, we've hinted at other things and you know, candidate nominations and all of this other jazz, but you know, to really understand how contrived and controlled a convention is, um, is, is to really understand Canadian democracy. Because although it rails against NDP members in a way I don't think liberal members care about, or, you know, conservatives clearly are okay with authoritar- authoritarianism to a degree, it doesn't rub them the same way as it does us. So it's very detrimental to progressives in this country, right? Because so many of us have... Or their hopes tied up in the party, and and then this is the the reality. So, most of the time, we point you guys in really good directions in terms of at, activism and organizations. Our last episode was with Justice for Workers. You can be far more effective helping out organizations like that and connecting with people like that than you can paying hundreds of dollars to go to a convention or, you know, spending all of your labor with a party that does not actually want your voice to be heard at all and go through great lengths and spend a lot of money to silence your voice um, deliberately. None of this is by accident. I will not cede any of that ground. Um, I've I've faced enough of that. response from people. And I've just seen how organizers work and I know how to throw virtual events. Um, and so I absolutely know that it's deliberate when they isolate us and cut us off and not have closed captioning on, uh, that's because you can then get a transcript of what happened in that meeting. You know, there's all kinds of reasons that they put in the controls that they do and it's all absolutely by design. So, um, thank you to people who contributed in the chat. Um, sorry if we kind of fell off. And we miss anybody. This conversation is obviously going to continue. Like I said, we do inside the NDP episodes a lot on blueprints is to explain power structures. We understand that there's people inside still fighting like Christine. And so, and also people who need to be validated in the fact that they've left. Right? So we can't change a power structure. You don't understand. You can't create better ones when you don't know at least what the bad examples are. So Peter's question, how we can do better, um, you know, Hopefully, we've kind of helped answer that by demonstrating what people actually want out of a convention. And um, again, there's a lot of organizations out there that can demonstrate to you exactly what inclusivity looks like, accessibility looks like, and empowerment looks like. And it's it's not in the NDP. Um, big shout out to the folks who came on our Zoom and the and the guests that maybe we uh, missed for technical difficulties and. The fact that we throw these together last minute all the time, it's just because that's how we roll. Um, So thank you for being patient with us and and checking in with us. And uh, yeah, I think you guys want to say goodbye. We sign off.
1: I would like to say to your point and to workers or justice for workers, I fought forever to get the party to the NDP to give a shit about my writing. Give me anything, nothing for years. Justice for workers during the um, educational workers' Um, strike. I reached out to them randomly to host an event here. They sent me flyers and or posters in English, posters in French, a whole bunch of resources within days. And the Ontario NDP refused to double the ODSP rate, the disability support uh, program rate, saying they would, they campaigned on 20%, regardless of years of internal fighting. And then The public outrage changed their position during the campaign almost instantly. Jessa has said many times that the NDP exists to de-radicalize people. It is very important not to put your whole life into the NDP. Exist in other spaces.
3: Yeah, for me, I I guess just the last thing to end off, and it's just what the NDP is, is a toxic relationship. You know, they take advantage of the good nature of people that want to change things, that want to do good work. And it's as Jane just said, like it's either deradicalization or burnout. One of the two. You don't end up or there. Both. Yeah, both. You don't often end up being able to contribute more. Like even if even if you're you're doing the NDP and other things, like just the energy that it costs you ends up burning you out from being able to do other things so much. And I've seen it happen to so many people over and over again so just like you know on blueprints like there are just so many different organizations and movements and the guests are always talking about literally any of those (laughs) is a better use of your time like literally any of them except the great and 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 yeah no and and if you can't find like one that speaks to you like it's go out and make it and you know like literally anything The NDP is not worth the time or the emotional energy that it takes. And yeah, no, just it's not. That's my. I hope you've all enjoyed
0: this cautionary tale and uh, this uplifting. (laughs) This is a segue to our end, but have a good evening, everybody. Keep disrupting. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.